Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law and founder and director of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on crime and black adolescence will be introduced by my guest co-host today, ASU law professor and deputy director of the Academy for Justice, Valina Beatty, whose bio you can find on our website. Valina, take it away. Thanks. Uh, hi, I'm Valina Beatty. I'm a professor of law and deputy director of the Academy for Justice, which is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And we aim to connect research with policy reform and share expert voices. Uh, so on this podcast episode, we'll hear from the author of a new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, uh, an important book that explores how normal adolescent behavior in Black children is criminalized. Uh, so joining us today, we're fortunate to have the book's author, Professor Kristen Henning, who is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic uh, and Initiative at Georgetown University Law School. And also joining us is another leading expert on race and juvenile justice, uh, Professor Robin Walker-Sterling, who is the Mayor Brown Professor of Law at Northwestern University School of Law, as well as Northwestern's Associate Dean for Clinical Education and the Director of the Bloom Legal Clinic. So I should have said Dean Sterling. So my apologies on that, um, Dean and Professor Sterling. Uh, so thank you both for joining us. We're so thrilled to have you. And I haven't had a chance yet to say hello to both of you. So thank you for joining us today. You can find our guests' full biographies on our website, academyforjustice.org. Uh, Professor Henning, uh, if I can just start with uh, an overarching question. Um, Let's talk about the origin of the book. So where did the idea for The Rage of Innocence come from? What was your motivation in writing the book? Well, thank you so much, um, Valina and Eric, for having us on this show. Um, I'm so glad you're covering these issues. And this is such an incredibly important issue, the criminalization of Black adolescents. I have been representing children accused of crime in the District of Columbia for 26 years. But what is so shocking about my work is that in that entire time, I have only represented four white youth. That's it. All of my other clients have been African-American. And so that might lead some of your listeners to think that either there are no white children in the nation's capital or that white children don't commit crime. And we know that neither one of those are true. 
Um, and so it's really hard to do this work for a long time and not want to blow up the system, to be quite frank. Um, but short of that, I really uh, wanted to dig deeper and step back, if you will, and understand why this was happening. One, is this happening in other parts of the country? Um, two, why, you know, the why question, why do these extreme racial disparities exist? And how are these disparities impacting Black children? And this is what's really important. How are they impacting Black children mentally, physically, psychologically, and developmentally? And is this disparate policing and disparate criminalization of Black youth making America any safer? Um, and finally, if the disparities aren't making us any safer, if they're not justified, then what can we do about it? And so really, that's what this book is about. It, it really gives voice to the children that I have been representing and to some children across the country, high profile cases that we've all heard about. But I really wanted to make sure it's not just the high profile cases, it's the everyday cases. And so I wanted to tell those stories. And it's so many children uh, nationally who are criminalized. Uh, and I wonder, you know, what uh, the book's title means in connection with this message of the book. So the rage of innocence is the rage that I want every single person to have when any one child is deprived of the right to be children. That's that's the, the macro issue. But of course, there are nuances in it. And one of the most important nuances in that title is also the rage that every Black child has or at least that many Black children have when they are told over and over again that they are criminal, that they are worthless, that they are not to be included. And so that's um, really what we would expect from any human being, right, that has an ounce of dignity, an ounce of self-worth, is to have that rage when they are labeled and excluded in these ways. And if you're a teenager and you express your rage, it may not look like um, a clear, rational dissertation, right? <laughs> Officer, I am disappointed in the way that you're treating me. No, <laughs> instead, it sounds like anger sometimes and it sounds impulsive and it sounds aggressive, um, but it is what we would want for anyone who is developing and owning their identity and their self-esteem. Absolutely. And on that point, I would love, so first, I, I love this book. I think it's an extraordinarily important work. And it, in all the right ways, it doesn't just move the reader by with the information that's in it. I think the book itself is, uh, it starts to sort of create a, a, a monument or a, a, a remembering of what it means for us as a society to delve into the question of how we are going to treat our children. Um, so, so I think that it just it just is an extraordinary uh, it's an extraordinary book, and I, I appreciate it so much, and I appreciate you for for all your work in it. Thank you, um, but. Um, but on that point, I wanted to ask you about, uh, continue talking about adolescence, right? Because it's such a unique time in our, in our uh, development, right? Because it involves figuring out who you are as an, in, as an individual and how you fit into the social groups around you. 
Um, and criminalization distorts and disrupts both of those journeys. Um, and so you talk about this distortion um, and the impact of that distortion in a number of areas or specific contexts, including how Black children wear their hair, what clothes they wear, what music they listen to, healthy sexual exploration. Um, and so I would love for you to pick any of these um, you'd like to highlight of, uh, and talk about the ways that criminalization and the dehumanization that Black children often um, face uh, disrupt uh, development in these areas. Yeah, what a what a beautiful question. And you nailed it. The question is about identity and adolescent identity formation, which sounds like a fancy term, is one of the most important things that happens during our teenage years. It's exactly right. It's how we figure out who we are, what we want to be, how we um, engage with other people. And so this idea of, of rejecting and criminalizing Black children during those teenage years is very, very impactful. And so I love this, you know, sort of drawing upon like hair and friends. And, and so I often ask people, just think about your teenage years. What were the most important aspects or what did you care about most when you were a teenager? And you cared about the way you looked. You cared about the clothes that you wore. You were um, identified by whether or not you got to hang out with the cool kids or not the cool kids, or you know, you wanted to be different and hang out with the different crowd. And so all of that matters. And we, you know, um, we honor that and we tend to glorify that in Western society. We care about children and we understand and we even at times you know, we glorify sort of these adolescent uh, predilections in, in Hollywood, but Black children very often are criminalized for those key markers of adolescence. So let's talk about clothes, for example, right, which matter a lot. And so think about the hoodie has become the iconic representation of a Black threat. Right. And particularly for a black male, think about, you know, Trayvon Martin um, and all the folks that you that we associate with the black hoodie and being a negative image. Think about sagging pants. Right. And, you know, hey, look, I don't want to see your underwear either. But why are we making sagging pants a crime? And there are literally laws on the books that criminalize sagging pants. And so when I talk about this, I think it's really important to contrast, right, the criminalization of hoodies and sagging pants with tie dye T-shirts or Doc Martens um, shoes. Right. And think about the fact, or look, the all black attire that folks wore to represent the goth culture, right? Which was often associated with um, violence and shootings. The tie-dye t-shirts were associated with the hippie era, which was often associated with, you know, uh, smoking weed, right? And Doc Martens today with red uh, and white shoelaces are often associated with white supremacy. Right. But we don't criminalize any of those. It's only sagging pants and the hoodie that has become this marker in our society for um, for for criminal behavior. And so it's just um, it, it's just it's really, really sad. And we could go on and on. I mean, hair, black girls are repeatedly criminalized for the ways in which they wear their hair. There's a whole movement around, you know, the Crown Act 
and reclaiming um, the value of, of black hair and preventing or challenging discrimination, both in the workforce, but in schools against the criminalization or the demonization of, of black hair. And I just, I'll end this part by just saying, you know, how incredibly important hair is to a girl in her adolescent formation. And then as a black woman, um, and what the listeners can't see is I, I have uh, dreadlocks and so does uh, Robin here. <laughs> you know, we both wear our hair similarly and how just incredibly, not only important uh, to us individually, but it's a cultural statement in a lot of ways. It carries meaning to wear our hair the way we hair, it's, it, uh, the way we do. So it's a right, really exactly. good question. Yeah, I definitely, I decided a while ago that um, I didn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't work any place where I couldn't wear my hair the way it naturally grows out of my head. Excellent. Beautiful. And, um, um, and that, and that um, your point about um, sort of identity formation in uh, that for so many kids starts around how they look yes. um, and how we criminalize that for, for black kids. It's, is, is such a trenchant point. I want to ask you about more about the why. And in particular, uh, I want to ask you about the why in the context in the, uh, of the historical context that you delve into that um, uh, you know is kind of a favorite of mine. It's, it's, it's my thing. But part of that historical context um, was the historical connections you made between prior laws and current ones. So some of these are cause you to look at current laws in a completely different light. Like, for example, uh, one, the rise of police in schools or, or school resource officers and the civil rights era, basically post-Brown v. Board. That's one. Or two, um, there's also the connection that you made between the Black codes of the 1860s and the current child curfew laws. Um, and so I would love it if you would talk about these or any other uh, historical connections that you see, because I, I think that um, part of what is happening with our our sort of relentless criminalization of Black kids' uh, behavior is it's it's part of our cultural heritage, and the more that we can um, map it, the more we can begin to change it. So I would love to hear you uh, on those points. Yeah, I love this notion of mapping the history. I was just, uh, I, I really enjoyed writing this book and all of the surprises that I encountered along the way. Because I've been doing the work for a long time and you don't realize um, how much we take for granted, right? And so the history piece, and you are indeed a history buff, Robin, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the history pieces were part of the surprises that I encountered. And so I could take a couple of them, like the one of the, um, the, the pieces that shouldn't really have been a surprise, but you don't stop and you think about, uh, you, you don't stop and think about until you're sort of forced to confront it. And that is indeed the, this evolution of police officers in schools. And so so like so many of us, I bought into the often repeated narrative that we have police in schools today because teachers and parents were afraid to send their children to school after the mass shooting in Columbine, right? And that was in 1999. Um, but when you dig deeper, you realize and you own the fact that we first saw police in schools in Indianapolis in 1939 
at the first inkling of conversation about uh, the possibility of school desegregation. And then in the 1960s in the civil rights era, we see a rapid increase in the presence of police in schools. Um, on the heels of, in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education, which um, was the first step really in desegregating schools. And so it's, it's really important to own that. And then as we press forward in 1991, we have the founding of the National Association of School Resource Officers. That's a full eight years prior to Columbine. And for me, that's significant because that says we have enough police officers in school with enough of a curriculum, enough you know, uh, training for them that we can have an entire national organization. And so then indeed, Columbine happens in 1999. It's followed by you know, a series of, 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 of school uh, shootings and the federal government increases funding for police officers in schools. But here's another thing that's important, that the cops in schools federal funding framework was already in place. It was already in place back in 1994, um, but it just hadn't been fully funded. And so Columbine comes along and they increase funding into this federal program that was already there. And where do the police officers go, they don't go to the Sandy Hooks and the and the Columbines. They don't go to the middle class, you know, white neighborhoods. They go to schools that have a predominantly black and brown presence. That's the history that we have to recognize when we think about contemporary policing in schools today. It means something. And, you know, Robin, you talked about this tracking and, and I talk a lot about the impact of policing on black and brown children and the trauma that's associated with it. Well, the trauma isn't just limited, isn't it time limited to walking into a school and seeing a police officer. It is invariably inextricably intertwined with that history of policing. So I walk into a school and I see a police officer in a blue uniform, I'm thinking about the history of oppression. And that's where, that's the root of that trauma that young people. So that was one of the, you know, historical pieces that I stumbled upon or really sort of, uh, I would say, um, focused on, right? Um, in, in, greater, in greater clarity. Um, and similarly, the Black Codes, I mean, I think that story is a little um, uh, simpler to tell, right? It's like we had the Black Codes, you know, in the era uh, after emancipation that, again, were designed to limit Black and Brown people, Black people in particular, um, in that context, to uh, where they could go, right? So what time they could be out, whether or not they could travel without uh, work passes and the like. So it was all about limiting the mobility, the success and the opportunity and the social advancement of black people. And then we have curfew laws today that are imposed upon children. And there is research after research shows there's, that there is not a jurisdiction. There was a study that found there's not one jurisdiction in the country um, that, that was studied that did not have racial disparities in the execution or the implementation of curfew laws, right? I should say the execution, right? So on their face, these laws, these curfew laws are race neutral, but it's in the execution 
of those curfew laws where you see racial disparity and it and at significant extremes right so that me, means that police officers a curfew law on the book but police officers are only going to those black uh and brown communities to enforce that curfew law and so it's just it, it's an example of of the ways in which we use law right uh to to limit and to criminalize blackness, and particularly as we talk about black adolescents, what we expect children to do, to sit outside, talk to their friends, to listen to music, and instead they are swept up in curfew violations. Let me, let me not, not necessarily push back, but give a kind of a, uh, a, uh, a possibility of, of different angles on this. So I'm wondering, the focus here is certainly on white versus black children. And um, I'm wondering how much of this two-track system may not represent what is going on in many places. In Arizona, where we are, there is undoubtedly, uh, a, there's a really strong argument for a multi-track system, but it is the Latinx kids and the kids from the reservation, members of the tribes that have these issues. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether or not the black versus white dichotomy is necessarily totally what's going on. And I and then, and then a couple of things to add on there, and then both of you um, I'd like to hear your thoughts. How much of this is gender, right? We talked about both boys and girls and their attire and their personal presentation and their ability to be, represent themselves. Uh, I also wonder how much of it is really about boys. And uh, I, when you were talking about the clothes, I remember Charles Ogletree famously saying that if I'm wearing a hoodie and I got my hat on backwards, I'm probable cause, right? And he was making fun of that, about that reality of being a young black man. So I wonder about that. And then the last one is, I wonder how much of this is really about class. Doesn't mean that race isn't involved, but the class is, and, and of course class can be imbued with racial predecessors and consequences. But I'm wondering how much of this is class in addition to these other concerns. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. Um, and let me just, you know, sort of quickly take them in turn and I definitely, you know, hear what Robin's thoughts are on these. So let me be clear with, with black versus white. Black versus white is one of the dynamics. People often ask me, so why did you choose to write a book about black children? So there are several things. One of which is as an African-American woman, these issues hit me profoundly. So I am writing out of personal experience and personal reflection. The second thing, though, is, and I think we, uh, we, we have to own this in conversations like this, that the research that I share in this book, the stories that I share in this book can be translated and should be translated and examined with um, indigenous youth populations and with Latinx populations. And in fact, I, you know, um, I have a couple of, of, of colleagues who do research in this area. We're like, somebody's got to write my book as a, as a book for Latinx kids. It's just got to be done, right? Um, and I think someone has got to do it for, for, for Native American youth or um, indigenous, you know, populations. One of the things that is a hurdle, that has been a hurdle, is that there is much more research that is normed on or that investigates the, the black-white disparity. 
um, and the, the sources of it, the root causes of it, at least empirically. So I get invited to come out, let's say to Arizona and to do a training. And I say to folks like, look, my research has been about African-American youth. And so um, I, uh, and they say, no, 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 still come because the research is transferable. And so we've all been digging around, hoping that someone will begin to do some of the empirical research that has been done around the impacts of policing and criminalization on black youth um, and translate that to the other um, ethnic groups that are impacted. There is increasingly a research involving Latinx youth. So um, I, I definitely wanted to say that. The third and final thing I'll say about the black versus white is that the African-American history in America is a, is a unique story, right? And this book, uh, it requires a unique telling, if you will, a nuanced, unique telling. And if I'm, and I really, Eric, it's such a beautiful question because when I started the book, I kept talking about black and brown children and people who would read early drafts and say, well, Chris, can you do all of this in one book? And I realized I could not. Um, and so I pulled back and I was very, very, very intentional about, um, about writing the book about black children. But when I do trainings and talks with stakeholders within the system, I unequivocally bring in all the research about the uh, about other youth. Um, let me stop there, Eric, and ask if you wanted to ask a follow-up before I go to gender and class. You bet. No, I, and you can just uh, uh, incorporate this in. It's just another potential fault line. And, and that is, to what extent are the problems that we see in the adult system? the issues of racial justice that are now currently being discussed and debated and changes being implemented. How much is the, the juvenile justice aspect of that larger issue? How much is it more or less like the junior varsity version of the varsity problem? Or is it instead entirely unique based on a number of factors? So let me stop there. Yeah, great question. And I would say, I wouldn't use the word entirely unique, but I absolutely unequivocally believe, again, that children and the issues of the criminalization of adolescence requires a special telling. And so often when we see police reform movements and, you know, um, conversations about criminal justice reform, we are not talking about the unique impact of the criminalization on Black youth and so, or, or youth of color, period. And so that adolescence piece is critically important, both in understanding the nature and the source of the disparities, as well as identifying the solutions and the reform agenda. And so just to give like one example, what do we know about adolescence. We know that adolescents are impulsive, reactive, emotional, sensation seekers, risk takers, right? They care about peer influence. Well, guess what? All of that means that in reality, that crime tips up. There's a, there's a temporary uptick in crime during our adolescent years. Now, whether everybody gets arrested or not, that's a whole different issue, but that there is an uptick. And so we have to understand um, that much of the behavior that we are criminalizing is actually what we call normative adolescent behaviors. What is to be expected? It is everything that you did when you were a kid, everything that your teenage children are doing um, and the like. So it's, it's really important to understand that we are treating, we are responding to normal adolescents differently 
for black and brown children than we are for, for white children. And then in terms of the solutions, like in, let's just, just take one tiny area of police use of force, right? Police use of force, we shouldn't be using any use of force, any manner of force with, with virtually, with the, ma the vast majority of young people, let me put it that way. So things like tasers, um, dogs, um, uh, body slam pr procedures, so many of these um, uh, strategies that have been used to restrain adults, we shouldn't even be having the conversation about when it's appropriate or when it's not. It's just never appropriate in most instances, right? In most instances. Um, and so, you know, I hope that was clear, but I, I think both the solutions and the problem identification um, matter for purposes of thinking about this as an adolescent development issue. And then you asked about girls. And so um, it, it, I think this question about the criminalization of adolescence is we really cannot allow ourselves to think of it only as a boy's issue. And in fact, in this book, I go out of my way quite intentionally to weave girls throughout. So I didn't want to have just a chapter on girls, right? Because I didn't want to signal to folks that, you know, girls were an afterthought, but that the criminalization of Blackness and of Black adolescence in particular starts with the same set of tropes and stereotypes um, about Black children that apply uh, across gender. It may sound a little different. Like, so girls, Black girls were treated as Jezebels, as immoral, as promiscuous, Black boys as, you know, brutes, and again, you know, sexually, sexual predators um, and the like. Hence how you have um, the, the lynching of a 14-year-old Emmett Till from those tropes. But please, understand that girls have never been ex excused or exempted from those tropes and those stereotypes. And so when we talk about the criminalization, it does look different. The raw numbers, it is true, are different. You see more boys in the system than girls, but they are absolutely being criminalized in different ways. Their girls are far more likely to be criminalized at school, through school discipline, um, dress code violations, you know, getting into fights um, with, you know, little cat fights you know, with girls at school, those kinds of things. So girls, the impact is real. The traumatic effects of the criminalization of adolescence is just as impactful on Black girls as it is on Black boys. And I talk a lot about how just watching um, police brutality or police violence is as extreme and as impactful as being there. So Black children, boys and girls suffer from, you know, anxiety, depression, hopeless hopelessness fear hypervigilance around police precisely because of these um, of these uh, criminalizing uh, behaviors and attitudes by society and I, I want to pause and just say that when I talk about policing I'm not just talking about police in the blue uniform I'm also talking about all of us uh, who criminalize black children so that's my thought about girls with regard to class, I have a similar reaction, right? It is so easy for us to talk about poverty. And so what I say, and I say this in the book as well, that yes, poverty matters. Poverty makes racial bias and the criminalization of adolescence worse, but it does not, but wealth does not in any way excuse uh, or alleviate the, the racial bias and the impact of bias on, uh, on, on children. Um, and so class matters, but race is the driver 
right? In the it's it's built in from the black codes, from the you know the 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 placement of police officers in schools. All of those structural pieces at play are at play for black wealthy kids as well as black poor kids, right? So. I'll stop there um, and see if others. That's, that's great, and that's a good way for me to, um, to 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 go back to Professor Walker Sterling. the uh, The way it's set up and described uh, by by Professor Henning is uh, is pretty ecumenical. It covers all aspects. You have dealt with the system in a variety of places. You are now currently in Chicago, that has um, has its own history of justice and racial justice and problems of juvenile justice. Uh, what has been your experience? And, and just to throw in another uh, kind of a, a make this scholarly of some sort, um, 20 years ago, two leading uh, uh, academics then at the University of Chicago, now at Yale, um, had a theory that um, this supported a, ga- a gang loitering ordinance. And it was based on this idea that uh, there needed to be something that interceded on low level criminality, particularly among certain gangs. They were all almost all minority kids. And it was intended, it was like uh, hard love, right? It wasn't long prison terms. It was intended to intervene at at small amounts and have the system try to break up whatever criminal organizations might exist in that city. It famously ended up being uh, struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. But that's an example of an attempt to deal with problems that that city that has had a minority majority city council and has very strong roots in uh, black politics uh, nonetheless supported that ordinance. So in terms of solutions, that kind of complex relationship, do you see solutions out there that we should be adopting? That's a great question. I think that, I mean, my kind of glib answer to that is that the solutions are right in front of us, right? We should just treat kids in um, on the South side the way that we treat kids in the suburbs, right? That we should give them the same resources, uh, uh, like resource their schools the same way, uh, create infrastructure so that they have the same uh, network of social support um, that they that 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 they they are in areas where there's uh, that are capacious enough to allow them to discover all their gifts and start to build their identities around. Oh, you know, I'm a I'm good at sculpture, or I'm a great flute player or, oh, I am great at horseback riding, right? But these are not things, these are not um, opportunities that we afford uh, kids in the, um, in, in um, urban areas. Um, and so I, so, I, so I think my short answer is that we know the solutions, they're staring us right in the face. We also know that, uh, um, we, we, the, the, the other problem though, is that we've become so inured to what racism looks like every day, that it's constantly in front of us and we no longer see it, right? So that most of us live in segregated neighborhoods, right? Like most of us live with mostly people who are our own race. Um, Most of us, like a lot of us work in places that are mostly white or mostly another race, right? Like we are so inured to the fact that we are in a, a segregated society that we no longer see it. Um, and that is what allows um, um, ideas, um, sort of essentialist ideas about, um, you know, the, the capabilities of 
of one race as opposed to another, right? To take hold because it it seems to be uh, like they seem to be sort of reified in our everyday in our everyday existence. When in fact, how segregated we are, all those things are deliberate results of longstanding and now 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 defunct, but but now now de facto as opposed to de jure, but um, um, policies um, enacted by law that we're still um, sort of roiling in the wake of. Uh, so yeah, so 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 um, and then just to uh, go back to a point earlier about um, your your great question about um, the black white divide and whether or not it's gender and whether or not it's also class. I guess what I wanted to say about that is I think that it's we have we have sort of both sides of this problem that where we don't talk about race and gender and class and other um, other um, fault lines of marginalization enough. And we also sort of focus on them too much so that so that so that we haven't evolved the lexicon that we need to talk about race in a way um, that is um, as incisive as we need to be. But the fact of the matter is that the race narrative for black kids is just not going to be the same as the race narrative for uh, Latino kids or or the same as the race narrative for Native American kids. And each of those narratives is distinct enough that they each deserve their own amount of study. And building off of that and going back to Professor Henning, what you said at the very beginning that you uh, have represented youth in the juvenile justice, juvenile legal system for 26 years, and that you've had a handful of white youth. So can you talk a little bit more about this invention of white adolescence and how this insulates white children from the repercussions of their own actions? Yeah, so it's that was one of the things that I learned that I stumbled upon in writing this book was about the history of adolescence and really understanding adolescence as a privilege. So in my entire lifetime, I have always understood development in three in three phases, childhood, adolescence and adulthood. But it turns out adolescence is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, that uh, uh, really came to bear after the Industrial Revolution. So before the Industrial Revolution, we thought of development in two phases, childhood and adulthood, and that was it. And the young people um, and adults, quite frankly, worked in the field, if you will, right? We were an agricultural country. We worked in the field and the parents took their children out in the field with them. But with the industrial revolution, it became clear that young people needed new skills, new uh, academic learning if they wanted to thrive in this industrial um, age. And so parents began to hold their children back from the field and give them a greater opportunity to learn. And so we see during this era, the uh, onset of mandatory education, we see um, the, the development of colleges and increase in college enrollment and the development of professional schools and growth in professional schools. And so as you can imagine, right, this shift 
really benefited who? It benefited benefited wealthy white folks um, who could afford to keep their kids in from the um, in from the field. And so it was the industrial revolution that shifted white wealthy kids into um, you know skilled labor. Uh, or jobs that required skill labor and advanced education. That was a privilege. So what came with this privilege of, uh, of adolescence that was created? Well, adolescence became this period of extended education, right? A prolonged period of self-discovery, experimentation, opportunities to have fun and leisure. So many of the things that um, you know, Professor Walker Sterling talked about when she was asking me about hair and kids and I mean, hair and friends and music and things of that nature. Kids begin to enjoy this during this extended periods of, of adolescence. So it is really understood now that adolescence was invented, really invented by white middle class parents to give their children an advantage in this evolving Western world. And so black children not only didn't get those early sort of natural advantages as a result of class, but then when schools became mandatory, you know, um, education became mandatory for everyone until, you know, ages 16 and 18, we began to criminalize adolescents in order to limit the prospect and the potential and the opportunity of, to be quite frank, of, of black and brown children, right? So we weren't doing it, um, you know, through schooling and the like, we were doing it through this criminalization. And so that's why I talk about it as a privilege. So while black and, uh, excuse me, while white children are allowed this extended opportunity um, for freedom and self-discovery and experimentation, black children are being arrested and stopped and disciplined at school. And even to be quite frank, killed, you know, during their adolescent years as a way uh, to limit adolescence and, and to limit prospect and potential. And so I say um, that in the early years with the, with the lynching of Emmett Till, that was a quite intentional symbolic statement. Yes, you know, they were a finite number of actors or people who were quote unquote responsible for that lynching. But the reality is the lynching of Emmett Till was every bit of a symbolic statement, right? To black America and to black children in particular that there are limits to what you can and will be allowed to do. So the policing of the boundaries of whiteness through these symbolic acts of violence against, um, against black children. And now we do it through you know, the criminalization. Kids can't be kids, right? Um, black kids anyway, can't be kids because you're gonna get arrested and stopped. Professor Walker Sterling, to build on what, what, uh, what Professor Henning said, the, you see as a, not only a law professor, but the director of clinical education at Northwestern, you see uh, young lawyers, uh, future lawyers, who will, will be concerned about these issues, and they're going to enter the field trying to counteract these problems. What advice would you give them, or what would you suggest, knowing the, the lessons that we get from Professor Henning's new book and from your own uh, scholarship and uh, experiences, what would you suggest to the next generation of lawyers who will be charged with making a difference in this important area of law? That's a great question. Because so often in, uh, in my classes, I'm focused on teaching the students um, particular skills, you know, cross-examination or, or um, oral argument or things like that. And so um, 
And so I don't have a chance to say sort of big picture uh, advice like this, but I guess what I would say to anyone who is thinking of going into um, juvenile defense as a career, um, I would say, uh, first of all, good for you. You're already showing some really good sense because it's an extraordinarily rewarding career. It's, it's um, uh, the only job I've had that um, really tapped all of my capabilities in all of the best ways, right? Spiritual, intellectual, emotional. You have to be more patient than you've ever imagined, more compassionate. And it's, it's, it's a job where if you let it, it will make you a better person. That said, um, my advice would be to uh, do it for as long as you can with as open a heart as you can bear to have. Don't, don't judge yourself too harshly if you feel like it gets too hard because it's really hard. Um, and um, uh, you have to, you, cause you have to be in a space that sort of liminal space where you are constantly hoping that you are appealing to the better angels of people's natures, um, but seeing that it's far from that, right? But instead seeing sort of the worst human impulses, the sort of the impulses for revenge, for punishment, um, impulses born out of uh, racism and other stereotypes, other biases, Um, and that's hard. So that would be my advice is to, go into it with your eyes open, expecting both of those things, right? Both of both the, um, how sort of extraordinary it is when it, when it works and you're able to find some sort of modicum of justice for your client or help them create a space where they can sort of grow safely into the person that they are always meant to be, but know that it's not always going to be that way. And, um, that's really hard, but the fact that you're willing to, um, keep sort of swimming upstream against that, it means everything. Thank you. Uh, similar question to you, Professor Henning, giving you the last word. Do you have a general lesson or lessons that you hope people will take away from reading your book? Yes. And I would say it is this, that Adolescence looks like adolescence all over the world, not just in the United States of America, but adolescence looks like adolescence all over the world. Um, And that our job really has to be to learn to treat all children like children, right? So to treat um, uh, black and brown children exactly as Professor Walker Sterling said, um, on the South side as they would on, on the, Um, you know, uh, everywhere else in the country, to be quite frank. And so really, we have in our country, we value children. And even when white children make mistakes, we have figured out how to show them grace and tolerance and to give guidance and to give support and redirection. But when a Black child makes a mistake, very much part and parcel 
um, of what it means to be adolescent, we criminalize them. And that's what we as a society really have to do. I think the last closing um, word that I would say is a psychologist friend taught me um, this phrase that I've never forgotten, which is that every single child in this country needs one, at least one irrationally caring adult. That one person who will see them, recognize their mistakes, but love them, support them nonetheless during this course of growth and redirection. Um, and a child who has a team of irrationally caring adults is likely to do even better. And so I think every one of us is called to be that irrationally caring adult for some child, and I mean some child that's not your own, and that becoming that irrationally caring adult, we get proximate to young people, young people who have grown up with trauma um, and discrimination and hardship, and we realize that they are indeed just children. And we can go and we can tell their stories so that other people see them, recognize them, um, and love them as children. And so I think that's what I would leave for everyone. Well, that's a terrific way to end the show. Uh, that brings us to the end of our time today. So we'd like to thank our guests for a really enlightening discussion. Uh, Kristen Henning, the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown University Law School, and the author of the new book, The Rage of Innocence, how America Criminalizes Black Youth. Thanks also to Robin Walker Sterling, the Mayor Brown Professor of Law at Northwestern University School of Law, where she also serves as the Associate Dean for Clinical Education and the Director of the Blum Legal Clinic. Thanks to my co-host, Valina Beattie, as always, and our producer, Amina Ketchen-Kamel. This podcast is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been measured justice.